So Money Episode 852, Maria Aspen, author of Startup Money Made Easy. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Our Inc. 5000 CEOs, we surveyed them in uh, last summer, and 42% of them used less than $5,000 to start their first business. So, that's not that much. And that's possible to either scrape together via savings or, or not to quit your full-time job. Thinking of starting a business, wondering how much money you'll need? Well, our guest today says it's not as much as you might think. Welcome back to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Our guest today is Maria Aspen. She's an award-winning business journalist and an editor-at-large at Inc. Magazine, where she writes about personal finance, startups, technology, finance, and gender. Before working at Inc., Maria covered business and finance for The New York Times, American Banker, where she was the national editor and covered the 2008 financial crisis and its aftermath, which she says was a turning point in her career. She's here to tell us about her new book, Startup Money Made Easy. It is the Inc. Guide to Every Financial Question about starting, running, and growing your business. The book focuses on a lot of the commonly held beliefs that people have about raising capital to start their dream business, and she debunks some of these mindsets. And she also uses her years of experience research and conversations with successful CEOs to demystify the startup money process for entrepreneurs to be. Plus, Maria dives into her own money and career journey as she climbed the ranks of the news business, today an editor at Top Publications. Here we go. Here's Maria Aspen. Maria Aspen, welcome to So Money. Thank you, Farnoosh. It's so exciting to be here. I love connecting with fellow journalists. I can't believe our paths haven't crossed yet, given that you work in uh, the business and finance space as a writer and as an editor, an award-winning journalist. Um, I'm really uh, grateful to connect with you. And uh, of course, you have a new book, which is uh, getting a lot of attention. And, and personally, I need to read this book because as people who have been following me here know, I'm launching a financial pop-up in April, and it's this big undertaking, um, in a lot of ways, financial undertaking for sure. So your book is called Startup Money Made Easy. It is. And uh, first of all, I have to say, I, I'm so excited to be talking with you because I've admired your work for a really long time. And uh, and I want to hear about your experience. Like after, you know, I'd love yeah. to know if, if this book is useful <laughs> at all to you, because it is very much a compilation of my five years of um, of overseeing the money coverage at Inc. and talking to, to so many different entrepreneurs. So Startup Money Made Easy is, is maybe a little bit of a of a misnomer. The idea is that, of course, it's never it's never easy to solve a money problem. But we try to go through. I tried to go through the most common ones and at least break them down so that you you have a starting point for all of them. Such a, a need right now, as I know, in interviewing so many entrepreneurs 
and myself now taking on a new project that that really the financial puzzle piece is the make or break piece. If you don't have the money, a lot of times ideas uh, die and uh, it would be really great to have a resource like this book and it, now we have it to be able to give us the behind the scenes and really the truth about, um, about funding a business at the startup level. Often the headlines, as you know, are obsessed with these like, oh, this company got raised all this VC, right? <laughs> right. Which, like SoftBank just bestowed another $100 million on this firm for like dog treat deliveries in Silicon Valley or whatever. Right, right. And I, I think that's an unfair um, illustration of like the reality of, of how startups get off the ground. First of all, I don't even think that's really a... Uh, for me, I would never want to take on that much VC, you know, regardless of how big my idea is. I think that it's, we see so many failures in, in the business world because they took on more than they could chew from venture capital. And it's not this thing that we should just celebrate. I think there's a lot of concern if you're taking on a hundred million dollars or $15 million and you're only like a year into your business development in your business plan, that's, that's a lot of responsibility. But back to your book, I mean, you're really trying to make this accessible. And what was it about? Maybe we should start here. What was it about the fundraising process and the, and the financing process that you felt was mystifying or was there was sort of this this gap in knowledge that you wanted to fill? Right. Well, it, it's a really good question. I mean, I think there were several and the, and the book kind of goes from start to finish. So from the very, it assumes that you're starting from the very beginning and you, you want to figure out just even how much money you need to, to raise to start your business through the process of books of bootstrapping to all of the different ways, um, places you could look for money, people you could ask for money, whether that's family and friends to banks and online lenders and credit card companies. And then it does go through the the VC and maybe more traditional fundraising process. But, you know, with the knowledge that that's that's really only applicable for a very small percentage of all founders and all small business owners. Um, Inc. regularly every year we put out a list of the 5,000 fastest growing private companies in America. And we survey the CEOs of those companies. And last year, only 3% of our survey respondents said that they used venture capital to start their business. Um, 43% used savings. That was far and away the, the biggest way that most of these founders got started. And then credit card loans and, and loans from friends and family were, were the next biggest percentages. Yes. And so it's not it's sexy not- to say that I <laughs> saved my money. Right. I had just met an entrepreneur the other day. In fact, she was on this podcast, Kate Luzio, who's the founder of Luminary, a woman who maybe you'd be worth um, profiling her in in any forthcoming stories. She was a Wall Streeter who saved all her bonuses, which again, is not like a headline, Mm -hmm. right? We always like to write about like how Wall Street overspends and, you know, fuels the New York City economy with their bonuses. She was just parking it in, in savings and didn't know what it was really going to amount to necessarily. But then once she got the aha moment to start her own business, which is now Luminary, this um, great workspace meeting place for professional women in New York, um, she knew she could do it on her own terms, on her own timeline, 
with her own money. And that is such freedom. Um, it's funny because I've talked to a lot of founders and, and frankly, especially a lot of women who fund their businesses that way. Um, a couple of years ago, I profiled a woman named Therese Tucker, who's the, the founder and CEO of this. It's this business that sounds totally unsexy. It's accounting software. But she started it. She was a computer programmer. She was working for she worked for a long time for other companies. She she saved her bonuses. She um, she cashed out her options. She cashed out her retirement account and um, and started her company in, in the early 2000s. And in 2016, she took it public. And now she's one of the only women to take a tech company public and still run it. It's worth, wow. it's worth um, on the market, it's, it's got a market cap of around two and a half billion dollars right now. And, and that's, you know, that is not, that's not Lyft, it's not Uber, it's not Airbnb, but she just kind of put her nose to the grindstone and saved and, um, and eventually built something that, that she controlled and owned. And would you say that part of the reason why more women are building companies by with their own funds is because, frankly, the venture capitalists don't <laughs> give us the money. And, and so out of necessity, right, we've had to kind of turn to other resources. And I think in the end, it's, it's benefited us in some ways. Absolutely. I mean, what, what were the latest figures like women get women founders get 2.2 percent? Yeah. And and if you're a woman of color, especially an African American woman, I mean, forget. By the way, it. the fastest like, growing group of entrepreneurs in this country, right? And most underfunded right. by venture capital. Anyway, yeah, and I mean, there there are there are so many problems with the venture capital system, and this is not to this is not necessarily to entirely bash venture capital. I mean, there there are businesses yeah. and and founders for whom it makes sense, and and I do think one bright spot about the the most recent numbers um, or percentages for women is that. The women aren't getting more of the venture capital dollars, but the overall pie is growing. So at least we're we're getting we're getting a, a greater number of, ven of venture capital dollars, just not a greater percentage. So small steps, I guess. Small steps. And speaking of, a lot of my listeners are in that small step stage where they're just trying to get an idea. Um, breathing life into an idea that they have. And perhaps it is that they go through friends and family, a small bank loan. I've heard of people like just maxing out their credit cards, not advising mm -hmm. it. But as you were reporting for this book, what, what are some of the go-tos for resources that, and more specifically, the ones that you recommend? Right. No, that's that's a that's a good distinction because we do talk to a lot of a lot of founders who fund their businesses by maxing out their credit cards or cashing out their retirement accounts. We don't necessarily recommend that, but um, but we recognize that that's how a lot of people do uh, do start their businesses. I would say that first of all, there there's good news in that the cost of starting a business um, has just come down tremendously, and of course, it depends what kind of business you want to start um, if you want to do something that's manufacturing based or high tech and requires a lot of engineers of course you're going to need more startup capital than if you're if you're launching a consulting business or, or something where you can make the product by yourself um, but that Inc 5000 or I should say about 10 years ago there was one survey that said the average business took needed about $31,000 to get off the ground uh our Inc 5000 CEOs we surveyed them in uh last summer and 
42% of them used less than $5,000 to start their first business. So that's not that much. And that's, and that's something that is, that it's possible to either scrape together via savings or, or not to quit your full-time job and start. So you can, um, you can start your business with your, by, by putting aside some of your Mm -hmm. salary and then test it out before you take the plunge into full-time entrepreneurship. Did these entrepreneurs or rather CEOs talk about what they did with that startup money? Because what does $5,000 buy you? That's a good question. It uh, it probably buys you a domain name for your website. It um, it may buy you some paid ads on Facebook or Google or Instagram. Um, it It buys you a lot of tech products that that are part of the reason why it's easier to start a business these days and cheaper because if you can set up a website and pay for a couple of social media accounts, um, again, depending on what the raw materials are, you at least have the means of directly marketing and selling your business. You don't necessarily have to, um, you know, maybe it buys you a co-working, a desk in a co-working space, but you don't necessarily have to go out, rent an office, um, hire salespeople, hire or hire cashiers or, you know, other people to work in your, in your physical location. Right. I think we can thank the internet for bringing down a lot of the costs of, um, of starting a business. Uh, okay. So what did this all teach you? Are you going to start a business now? Now that you know, it just costs about five grand. What's your side hustle going? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer, so I feel like, uh, always hustling. It's, it's just a multi-level side hustle. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Uh, you know, I'm always, I'm always trying to promote my stories on, on Twitter and Instagram and I, I write a weekly newsletter and I maintain a website that is probably overdue to be updated. Um, do I don't right now have any particular ambitions to start my own business, but I feel like, I feel like it should be, it's kind of like writing a book, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a ton of work as you know, so you should wait until you feel very passionately about the project. Um, I, I felt passionately about this book. It was, I'm very proud of it. It was a grind and a lot of summer weekends that I gave up to finish. Um, but I'm, I'm very happy to have done that. And I, I wouldn't want to take on the same the same workload for a business until I until I felt really passionately about it. What made you passionate about the field of finance technology as a writer and now as an editor at large at Inc.? You also have a weekly newsletter called Lady Business, which is about the intersections of gender, business, and culture. Um, you're an author. What drew you to maybe first writing and specifically business writing? So I would say a little bit of luck and a little bit of intent. Um, I I lucked into a job um, straight uh, or an internship rather after I graduated um, college, where I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't think it was possible to get paid to do that. Um, and I was super shy in high school, so I, reporting didn't really occur as something that I'd be good at. Um, but I, I got an internship as a reporter and, and realized that I really enjoyed it and that I could be paid to write for a living. 
Finance, similarly, I would say, was I, I took a job covering banking right in March of 2008, right before, right as the financial crisis was was getting started. And um, I spent the next several years covering just the consequences of the crisis and the fallout and how how badly consumers were hurt by by both things that the the banks and financial companies had deliberately done and by and just by a failure um a f- I would say a failure of attention, both from big companies and and from consumers who maybe took out credit cards that they couldn't afford to pay for, got mortgages they couldn't afford to pay for. One one of the things that I try to do at Inc. as we oversee the as as we talk to entrepreneurs and provide advice for entrepreneurs, and and one of the things that I very much wanted to do with this book was be responsible and 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 sober minded about the risks that are entailed for for entrepreneurs i mean i as i say in the book about half of businesses fail within 5 years and almost 70% within the first 10 so starting a business can be can be wonderful and exciting and it's certainly extremely popular in popular culture these days but it's it's like any other financial risk you take um or any other bet it's it's like that you're going to lose all of the money that you put into it. So I, I very much wanted to write a guide that would not, would not be overly boosterish, and that would recognize some of the dangers of of doing a startup, and just try to try to give advice for how to go about making financial decisions in the responsible way, so that you're not spending money you can't afford to lose. What is the biggest mistake? What is the biggest financial mistake that entrepreneurs make? Is it that they overextend themselves? They take on too much debt or VC, venture capital, or they just make really bad. They, they, we focus on the wrong things. They invest in the wrong things when that should, like things in the beginning that should come later in the timeline. I think, I think all of the above. I think that. VC is, it's not something that a lot of entrepreneurs deal with, as we discussed. Um, I think a lot of people, though, there, a lot of people, um, find the wrong partners, whether it's co-founders or investors. Um, we talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who either take money from the wrong people or who started a business with the wrong people. And when, when, things get difficult, um, realize that they couldn't rely on their partner to have their back or that they and their partner didn't see things the same way. Uh, and then in general, I would say just n- underestimating how important cash flow is to your business is is one of the biggest mistakes that we see entrepreneurs make. Um, it just continue it's always one of the biggest problems that um that small business owners say that they have according to Federal Reserve data. And um you know, one of the things that I advise in the book is if once you get serious about starting a business is sit down and write a business plan and spend some time wrestling with your numbers, even if even though they will most likely be very theoretical at that point. Um, if you can't sit down and try to make your your numbers make sense and provide a document to any banks that you might want to go to for loans or any friends and family who you might want to ask for money, let alone any investors down the line, then if you're not willing to do that work up front, then you probably shouldn't be starting a business. 
Yes. And if you're not a numbers person, which most people I think are not <laughs> numbers people, entrepreneurs right. aren't, you know, necessarily all MBAs in finance, right? Uh, and, Absolutely and not. I think that's also another um, hesitation or roadblock is that, you know, well, I don't, I don't really speak numbers, you know, and although I know, maybe I know what my rent and my monthly cash flow is going to be, but, but projections and, and those kinds of things can be quite scary to people. So do you think that it's worth to invest in someone who can do that for you? I do if you can afford it. And, and frankly, if you if you don't feel like you're a numbers person and you're not able to make yourself become one or if you if you don't understand the the business enough to um to figure out your business plan on your own. I, I think there's nothing wrong with uh, with pay, paying for financial advice. And in fact, there are several times in the book where I say, you know, obviously this is a general guide. Every single business is going to be different. Every single entrepreneur is going to be different. So please make sure that you're consulting lawyers and financial advisors and accountants who, you know, who you can go to with the specifics of your business and your financial situation. I do think, however, that if you can't afford to pay for financial advice and you can't figure out your own numbers, then maybe you should take a step back before starting your business and think about if this is really something that you can afford to to risk your your money as well as your time on. Mm-hmm. I, I, ha- I love stories where they're like, I didn't know how to do a P&L, but then I just took a Udemy class and figured it out. Or <laughs> I went to Investopedia right. and I figured it out. You know, I mean, it's not rocket science. It just doesn't maybe come, it's not second nature. And, it, and sometimes numbers, like they evoke a lot of anxiety because maybe you weren't the best person in math or I was definitely, mm-hmm. I did terribly in accounting. Um, but it's just like, it, this, it, you know, there's so many hard things. This should not be the hard, the hardest thing, you know? Right. And as you pointed out earlier, I mean, there's, there's so much technology has made things so much easier. There is so much information out there, whether it's, um, whether it's Investopedia or legal zoom, you know, that if, if it's a super complex decision, you may want more professional help, but there, there are a lot of resources out there these days for just a, a baseline check if you don't understand, uh, if you don't understand your numbers. Let's transition a little bit now to some personal financial perspectives. Uh, mm-hmm. You can't get off the show without giving us some nuggets of your personal financial life. Um, so we'd love to ask a little bit about maybe your childhood uh, and how that shaped your mindset on all things money. Absolutely. Um, I would say I grew up in a privileged and well-educated but low income household. Um, my parents were both teachers and my dad was when I was born and, and for the first few years of my life, my dad was finishing up his PhD and, um, and taking some, some early teaching jobs. My, my mother's a music teacher. Those are not the most well-paid um, <laughs> professions in the country. So I grew up with a lot of, you know, we, we had a lot of spaghetti dinners and we, um, my mom sort of made grocery money by, by teaching piano lessons um, to, to our neighbors and friends' kids. So, and it was, it was, you know, a cash economy. I, there, there are 
in a much better financial situation now. Um, I, you know, I have a New York magazine editor job. I'm, I'm in a pretty good financial situation. Um, knock wood. Uh, I also work in media. So that's, that's always precarious, but I, I do think growing up, seeing my parents maybe, uh, work paycheck to paycheck to get groceries on the table. It made me very much appreciate saving, putting money away for, for, um, rainy days. And also, you know, my, my dad came from a family, his, his father was a factory worker. His mother was one of the early computer programmers. Um, and they, they weren't wealthy, but they knew how to spend money on, on fun things and on things that, that made each other happy. So whether it was fancy meals out for, um, to celebrate a big event or a fun family vacation, I, I think I grew up in a family where, we didn't always have money, but when we had money, we, we knew how to splurge responsibly. And now as an adult, do you feel like you've taken on a lot of that uh, modeling in your own life? And what would you say is your greatest financial success to date? That's a, my greatest financial success was, um, or the thing that I at least felt the most uh, personal satisfaction about was I, um, I went to Georgetown. I took on some some loans to do so, and and my family took out some loans to do so. I, I had some I had some financial aid, some grants, and some scholarships. But um, in my late twenties, I was at a job that was I took a job that was a significant step up in salary and um, and included like overtime payments. So all of a sudden, I had more cash coming in on a regular basis than I was expect than I ever had before. And I just sucked that all away and started paying off my loans as quickly as I could. And um, getting rid of my student debt by the time I was 30 or 31 was like my proudest financial moment, I would say. That's huge. That's really, that's really um, commendable, especially when you hear about people who are still in their 40s and 50s who are paying off undergraduate student loan debt um, or or sometimes like law student debt. yeah, and it's not even about like the interest rate because sometimes the interest rate on your student loans is not is not that significant. But I, I can relate. Um, when I got my first book deal, I just immediately cut a check to uh, Sally May, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was just like, I just I like the idea. It's it's like um, mentally cl- clearing for me to know that I don't have this this weight and this this thing on my plate called student loan debt, even though the interest rate was like 2% or something. But I just, for me, it felt like I'd become an adult at that point. Yes. Yeah. And just not having to worry about the monthly payment. And and now whenever, whenever I have a good month or I get a bonus, like being able to having more freedom to decide what I want to do with that. You know, I still, I still tend towards the, let me put that away and save for a rainy day. But, um, I just booked a, booked a vacation to Morocco and I'm, I'm thoroughly nice. looking forward to spending that money. You have had and still have some really big, important jobs in journalism in New York. Someone who's kind of coming up through the ranks and maybe just finished school and, and you're like the North star, you know, I want, I want that job at uh, New York mag. I want that job at Inc. And I want to be an author and I want to contribute to the New York times. And this is, this is your life, Mary Maria Aspen. <laughs> uh, what would you tell your younger self 
what have you think what do you think you've done really well and right in your career climb that maybe you didn't learn in school that wasn't mentored to you but you figured it out it's a really good question. First of all, thank you. It's, um, you know, you don't always feel like inside of your career that you necessarily... You're a big deal. I'm going to tell yeah. you that. You heard it from me, if, if no one else. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I'm blushing here. Um, I will say one thing that, I, that I've always tried to go by with my career is to take jobs where I will learn and be challenged, um, even if they're not necessarily the most obvious jobs for prestige reasons. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, I, I was very lucky. One of my first jobs in journalism was as an assistant at the New York times. And that was amazing. And I, I got to learn from and work with so many wonderful, tremendously accomplished journalists. And I was there for a few years and I was freelancing, um, for the business section and, and contributing regularly to the newspaper. But I was also told repeatedly that um, generally news assistants weren't promoted to reporters and that if I wanted to be a full-time reporter, I would, I would have to leave the paper that I just, I, I was welcome to continue being a, being a news assistant for as long as I wanted to be. And at a certain point, I realized that it was an amazing job. And I got to, I got to say that I worked for the New York Times but I also was not learning as much as I would be as a full-time reporter with a regular beat. And so I went to a newspaper that most people outside of finance haven't heard of called American Banker. And I wound up covering banking, a topic I had never studied. And, um, you know, was that was that did not necessarily look like the sexiest reporting assignment. I wound up there in March 2008 at the beginning of the financial crisis, and it was the best thing that could have happened for my career because I, I learned how to be a financial reporter on a very important business story and, um, and just got to learn the ropes at a place with a ton of really good, really smart journalists, very dedicated to a a niche that they knew a ton about. And, um, and I think that helped me tremendously in my career. American banker is a really great place to, like you said, just, uh, build up your journalism chops. And I believe my first editor at Money Magazine, Bob Safian, was there in his early tenure and talked about it in a similar way where he felt like that is just where he got really good at reporting um, and, and had to get really creative as a journalist and as a reporter, as an investigative reporter sometimes, because they don't want to, you know, this is an industry where it's very, um, information is locked up. Like it's really hard yes. to get information details outside of press releases. So uh, that's, it's no coincidence then that you started there because I feel like I've met now a couple of people, a few people who have started there in some ways, it wasn't your start, but experienced that newsroom and then went on to do even more incredible things. It's funny. I feel like it's a, uh, it's this, you know, secret sorority or fraternity yeah. of, of journalists. I run into a lot of people who have gone through American banker and uh, you know, it, it just, I was incredibly lucky to spend some time there. It's the uh, new year still kind of, um, mm -hmm. I think we can technically say happy new year without like people looking at us oddly. Um, what is your new year's money resolution? This is a question that I'm asking guests um, 
as part of my partnership with Chase, who's a sponsor of the podcast. And we're just really curious to know, what's your money resolution? So I don't know if it's a goal that I'm going to achieve this year, but my money resolution is to put aside more money for an eventual down payment. Mm-hmm. Um, I do live in New York City. I like living in New York City for most things, except for the price of real estate. So I don't know if buying a place in New York City will ever really be within my means as a as a full time journalist, but. Um, but I think saving for it is is something that I'm actively trying to do right now. It's a good it's a good year. I think there, we're talking a lot now about this being a real buyer's market for the first time in a long time, right? Which never happens in New York. Uh, <laughs> at least it doesn't it doesn't come often. This, this opportunity. I, and I feel like such a, um, I feel kind of like a vulture, you know, but many of, many of the friends I have, I'm in my mid thirties and, and, uh, many of the friends who are my age who own uh, property were able to buy it in 2009, 2010 after the economy tanked. And I, I don't want to wish for another downturn, but I do <laughs> feel like the only time that, it, you know, I'm more likely to be able to afford to buy something if the economy does turn down. On the other hand, I may not have a job as a journalist anymore. Right. So, so there's, there's that. Uh, there's, there's that. that. There's that. Um, but now that we can sort of anticipate the recession, versus <laughs> the last one we had, it just kind of snuck up on us in some ways, depending on where you're, I don't know, some people claim they saw it coming. And I'm like, okay, you're one of five people who saw that coming. Right. Um, Hindsight is twenty twenty. Yes. Always. But now that we may be anticipating it just because it's been such a bull run that hopefully people are doing the good work of saving in anticipation of that and keeping more cash on hand um, for the reasons that you've talked about, you know, starting a business maybe because you don't have a job now <laughs> or right. buying real estate because the market's tanked. Um, we're going to wrap here with some so money fill in the blanks. Ooh, okay. Yeah, we do have some fun on this show. Um, and so <laughs> I'm going to... It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm joking. This has been really um, a real treat to hear your perspectives on, on so many things. Um, this is, but this is like really easy. Don't overthink it. First thing that comes to mind, fill in the blank. Um, okay, if I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say you won $500 million. The first thing I would do is... Uh, Buy a fabulous vacation slash retirement home for my parents. Nice. Oh, that's so sweet. I love hearing when people want to, you know, take care of mom and dad. That's always <laughs> that's always a good reminder to us all to take care of our families. When I was growing up, the one thing I wish I had learned about money is mm, how how interest works and how credit cards work. I didn't really learned that until I was re- reporting on credit cards. Does anybody? I feel like nobody no. learns that stuff when they're supposed to. It's no. always a hard lesson. Honestly, the same for just investing. Like, mm-hmm. who's taught that? Not women. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, we kind of forget. We, they skip that uh, lesson uh, in school and at home. And it's definitely the number one concern and question that comes through this podcast is women asking me about 
their 401k and Roth IRA and where to put their money and how to invest. And I think the men have just as many questions, but maybe they're not asking. <laughs> right. Because the, the no one really yeah. knows all the answers. Um, okay. When I splurge, I like to spend my, spend my money on. Uh, so the last splurge that I that I made that I was just so excited about was I bought a $500 upgrade to business class coming back from a business trip uh, to Dubai. It was the best $500 I've ever spent. Especially since you were traveling thousands of miles. I mean, if you was just like a, you know, a puddle jumper or something from, you know, North Carolina, I'd be like, that was a waste of money. But that actually is definitely worth its weight in gold. Absolutely. All right. And last but not least, I'm Maria Aspen. I'm so money because... Mm, I'm so money because I have a job that I really love that pays me pretty well and that allows me to talk to lots of really fascinating people. It's very cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Maria. It was nice to finally connect with you and congrats on Startup Money Made Easy, available everywhere. Farnoosh, thank you so much. Maria's book, again, is called Startup Money Made Easy. Her website is Maria Aspen, that's M-A-R-I-A-A-S-P-A-N.com. She's also on Twitter at Maria Aspen. All this info, as you know, is back at somoneypodcast.com, where you can click on Ask Farnoosh and send me your questions for our Friday Ask Farnoosh episodes. And there also, let me know if you'd like to co-host. Yeah, join me on the show, share the mic. It'll be great to connect. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy Monday, and I hope your day is so money. Money.